Well, you ask me what I like about Texas I tell you it's so wide open spaces It's everything between the Sabine and the Rio Grande It's the Yano, it's the Cato. Howdy, 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 Cable Smith. Welcome, everybody, to episode 500 of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Can you believe it? 500 episodes. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Uh, man, I can't believe it. It's been damn near 10 years, y'all. Uh, but 500, that's uh, it's got to be a milestone, right? Uh, never thought when we set out to do this that, uh, well, I never thought one way or the other, to be honest with you. But here we are, nearly a decade later, and uh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors with you fine folks. Uh, little Gary P. Nunn starting things off for us today. i tell you what I like about Texas. And one theme that you will hear throughout today's broadcast is I'm only playing music from artists who have been in studio with us over the last decade. So certainly looking forward to uh, reflecting back on some of those fond memories and the times we've shared here in the studio with some of our favorite artists. Um, we've got a great show lined up for you here this morning. And originally, I thought, man, I need to book some high-profile guests for episode 500, make it this big thing. But then I was like, man, I already have the perfect episode for this occasion. It's the elk episode, the, the annual elk recap. Uh, my buddy Chisholm Cook, my elk hunting partner in crime, always joins me uh, for this episode and the third wheel this year is Ty Stubblefield formerly of Born and Raised Outdoors and also now uh, the chapter coordinator for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Chisholm and I went up to Montana and spent last week hunting with Ty. Uh, there was success, there was failure, well, a lot of failure on my part <laughs> which you'll hear about uh, but that's the beauty of the Elkwoods and for Chisholm and I, it was what we sought out was to hunt with someone who had done it a lot more than we have. I think between the two of us, we have uh, 11 elk seasons under our belt. And by that, I mean weeks. You know, when you hunt out of state, you go on a destination hunt like that. You're from Texas. Well, you're lucky if you get a week in the elk woods. Um, Ty Stubblefield has been doing this for 22 years. Uh, so Chisholm and I figured we could learn uh, from how he communicated with the animals, how he predicted they would react to certain things, to weather, to terrain, to calling, all of that stuff. Um, so, And it was a learning experience, don't get me wrong. But anyway, I'm excited to share that story that week with you guys coming up here on episode 500. So uh, get ready for some laughs because there was plenty of those. And and uh, some frustration, because we had that too, as you would expect on any backcountry hunt. Uh, there was bourbon, there was backstraps, there was campfires, and all that good stuff, bumps and bruises. I took one nasty fall, and I generally uh, carried up the rear as far as I let Ty and Chisholm, uh, well, they were in a little better shape than me this year. Uh, but yeah, at one point in time, I was actually in front and walking over some deadfalls and just ate it. I mean, garage sale, bow goes flying. I'm, and next thing you know, my fingers bleeding, like skinned all of the skin off one of my fingertips and then looked down and I've got this freaking huge bruise on the inside of my thigh where I think, uh, you know, a, a lay down had 
almost impaled me. <laughs> but got up, nothing hurt but my pride. And once Ty and Chisholm realized I was okay, it was uh, then kosher for them to start laughing. Uh, so there, there was plenty of that. Chisholm, here's a funny antidote. I had just shot my first spruce grouse. Yeah, you know, usually we've got one arrow in our quiver that is the grouse arrow because living off of uh, Mountain House and RX bars gets old pretty quickly. And when you're up there for a week, some fresh meat sounds pretty good. So I shot this uh, the spruce grouse, and we noticed another one flew up in a tree right by it. And so Chisholm, draw, he comes a full draw, aims, and I'm videoing the whole thing, and he lets that arrow fly, and it hits right under the grouse. The grouse doesn't even fly off. It basically was like he gave it a new perch. Uh, it ended up that it was the offspring of the mom that I just shot, and uh, I think he dispatched it with a stick after that because it, it just wouldn't go anywhere. It was kind of sad, but uh, Ty and I had a good laugh there. Uh, and there was plenty of other <laughs> hilarity that ensued on this trip uh, as well, which we'll get into here during today's presentation. So that's what's on the docket for today. A uh, couple other things to mention. Keep sending in those hunting, fishing, outdoor photos. You can email them to me. You can post them on Instagram or Facebook. And just let me know that uh, you want to enter your photo into our monthly contest because our 12 monthly winners at the end of the year will square off for a chance to hunt trophy access deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Uh, we've got an awesome giveaway to celebrate episode 500 here for you today. And it's a uh, Stealth Cam DS4K $300 trail camera. We're going to give away to this week's winner. Email the words, actually just email 500, just the numbers 500, and we'll celebrate this little milestone, episode 500, by giving one of you guys or gals your own Stealth Cam DS4K trail camera. Let's take a quick break. Up next, my longtime friend and hunting buddy Chisholm Cook and my new friend and longtime elk hunter, Ty Stubblefield, jump on. It's the elk episode of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them cable sent you. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Hey, y'all, this is Zane Williams just wishing my buddy Cable Smith a happy 500th episode. Congrats, man. I've known Cable for a while. I've been his bad luck charm on many <laughs> a good hunt. 
and I hope we have many more in the future. Congrats, buddy. For spinning wheels to silver wings, a thousand miles between these two buddy Zane Williams bringing us back on the Lone Star. Life ain't as simple as it once seemed. Thank you so much for tuning in. The devoted archer himself and my elk hunting partner, Chisholm Cook, will jump back on uh, for his annual visit. And then Ty Stubblefield will be here as well. And we'll dive headfirst into the week that we shared in Montana's backcountry momentarily. But first, this segment proudly brought to you by First Light. If there was one thing that uh, Ty Chisholm and myself had in common is that we were all wearing First Light. And they're not sponsored by First Light. Uh, they just love the gear. They know that it works. And when you're talking about performance in the backcountry, what's going to keep you warm? What's going to keep you dry? And what's going to hold up to the uh, punishment that those backcountry environments will place on your gear? Well, the answer is First Light. Whether that's base layers, midweights, or outerwear, they've got everything you need. Socks, um, underwear, everything. To heavy outerwear as well. And at one point, I look over on this trip, and Chisholm has on a uh, ASAT pair of pants, a Cypher shirt, and a Fusion cap. He was running all three. And the ASAT's actually retired. First Light doesn't even uh, make clothing with that pattern anymore. But just kind of tell you, we're running the gambit of uh, <laughs> everything that First Light has to offer on this trip. Check it out. First Light, go further, stay longer. With that being said, let's go ahead and bring them on right now. They will be here for the duration of today's presentation. It's my pleasure to welcome Chisholm Cook back to the show and Ty Stubblefield. It's great to have you as well, man. Awesome. Thanks for having us on. Ty, we'll start, we'll start with you because our listeners are somewhat familiar with Chisholm. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself as an archery elk hunter, a little bit of background there, and also what you do for a living. Okay been an archery elk hunter in the west since 1997 um just kind of fell into it via co-worker and um fell in love immediately with archery and not only elk hunting but any other kind of bow hunting you could do uh so deer or bear or squirrels or you know anything you could hunt or shoot with a bow grouse <laughs> and um yeah grouse <laughs> especially grouse um and yeah, just just fell in love with it immediately. Um, you know, it's kind of kind of sound funny, and you guys talk about it all the time. But uh, the need to like make hunting more difficult, I think, was probably the driver. Um, it just you know pulling the trigger on a fork and horn blacktail deer, which I grew up in Oregon, um, just kind of had lost its challenge and lost its luster. So I kind of went down that path of trying to make it more difficult and more challenging and um, in the end, more fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I've been been bow hunting for elk for, well, since 97. So I think you added that up for me, Cable. It was like 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I think Chisholm and I have not years experience. We have like 11 weeks of elk hunting combined, and you're at like 22 full season. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Uh, well. I mean, don't be shy. Don't be modest. Talk about born and raised, and then and then ultimately moving to Montana. All right. Well, I'm not good at talking about myself, but uh, 
So I uh, probably in 2000, oh, I think it was 2007, um, you know, a bunch of us, a handful of us, uh, close friends, were, you know, we'd been elk hunting together for a while and we were watching, and not that there's anything against Primos, um, but we'd watched all the Primos videos and, you know, the, the guys were, you know, hunting on ranches and they're turning down 350 inch bull elk. Um, <laughs> I just like we're to like, see one, much less turn it down. That's not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, you know, your average Joe, your public land elk hunter, like that's not what they encounter. Like if you, you know, the average elk hunter kills an elk every seven years. Oh, and so, well then Chisholm and I are doing great. <laughs> yeah. You guys are, you guys are above average. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it was like, no, man, we, we shoot whatever's legal, you know, if it's a spike and that's what we're going to get an opportunity to kill, that's what we do. And so we bought a camera and in that first year, um, I think it was 90 or uh, 2007, that first year we, you know, we bought a camera and filmed all our hunts and I'll be damned if we didn't capture uh, all four of us filling our tags and uh, put together a, a DVD called Tagged Out. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, every year we filmed and uh, put to put out a couple of DVDs over the course of the next four or five years, and then you know that that grew into a YouTube channel. I um, in the process there though, I took a job. I, I'd worked in conservation that whole time. I at the time when I lived in Oregon, I worked for Oregon Hunters Association, um, and you know, take, take conservation very seriously. And it's, it's my, my, uh, just my love to give back and want to be a part of it, make a difference. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to turn that into a career. And I've done that since 2008. Um, before making it a career though, I was a volunteer, you know, for eight years Mm -hmm. prior to 08. And so I volunteered on, you know, boards and projects and organizing events and raising funds. And then, like I said, I, I made that my career, and uh, that's what I'm doing today. But in in uh, 2015, I was um, lucky enough to, to get a job with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and move to Montana, and that's which where you guys came. You came to Montana to Elk Hunt, but that's uh, kind of in a nutshell, you know, where my, my background is, is, uh, you know, first and foremost is hunting is my passion. It's like, it's my life. It's, it's like what everything revolves around. And it's also my career, you know, um, giving back and, and, uh, to conservation. And so, yeah, kind of in a nutshell, that's, that's what it's about. I will throw in that. Cause I'm not sure if you will. Uh, I did start a podcast a couple of years ago. And so a good portion of what we talk about is hunting and conservation and, uh, it's pretty unfiltered. It's not as classy and filtered as yours. <laughs> Two beer minimum, uh, right? <laughs> Two beer minimum. Uh, <laughs> is allowed. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's shooting so, the bull. Anyway, yeah. If, if folks want to, I know you're shooting the bull. Yeah. Has a, you've got your own social media outlets. People can also find you. Ty Stubblefield, uh, because you're pretty, you're pretty well known out there in the West as we would find out in the woods later. Uh, and we'll hit on that, but but Chisholm, um, talk about how we ended up or how we came to go hunting with Ty. You know, you and I usually put in for New Mexico and 
if we don't draw New Mexico, then we say, all right, well, we'll just go over the counter somewhere. But uh, how do we end up uh, hunting with Ty on this trip? It's funny because everything ultimately ends up coming back to beers. Ty mentioned the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. That's an organization that you and I are both a part of as members. Um, I've dabbled in and out of leadership here in the te- in Texas uh, and at the state level. Um, but two years ago, I went to the annual BHA Rendezvous, um, the 2018 Rendezvous, I guess, uh, which 2018 and 19 were both in Boise, Idaho this next year in June 2020. They're coming, bringing it home to Missoula, Montana, where the organization is headquartered. But mm-hmm. I went out there with the intention of volunteering um, at that event for basically the three days of the of the deal and uh, met a bunch of people that way. Uh, met Ty kind of briefly uh, at a couple of the events. He's one of the maybe the guy who organized this uh, annual hike to hunt challenge through BHA. And they have a, so they have a hike one morning out there. Um, Got to be up there like six 30 in the morning. And I helped out kind of organizing and getting that off, uh, getting that going that morning. But um, the last night I do this campfire stories, um, you know, event in the, in the conference center there where guys like maybe Steven Ranilla or uh, yeah, you name it, guys from all over the, the hunting industry, but also a lot of uh, guys and gals from uh, maybe that aren't famous that are part of the organization there in Missoula or a couple of people from Boise spoke. They have a combination of, you know, media personalities from the hunting and fishing community and, and you know, just kind of regular Joes that are really good at spinning a yarn tell, you know, hunting stories. Mm-hmm. Um and then at the end of that, they've got an auction. And I think there was like an intermission where they auctioned a few items. And one of the things on the auction menu was a uh, basically a filmed hunt by the quite famous Ty Stubblefield. <laughs> right. Uh, where Ty would come along on basically any hunt you wanted to do uh, anywhere in the world was the way it was pitched. I think four days um, was the deal. And film your hunt for you. And to me, at the time, being at least familiar somewhat with Born and Raised, and I'd heard Ty on various different podcasts, but everything I know about Western hunting, I learned mostly through podcasts, and everywhere you turned, that deep voice of his was popping up. Um, I don't know, I threw out there a bid and um, let myself get raised one time and then tried to back out of it as this other guy kept pushing it. Um, but I'd had about three beers and, uh, I don't drink, I don't drink a lot these days. So three craft beers is enough to make me, uh, exercise <laughs> different economic judgment that I might otherwise. Yeah. He and, was, uh, he was glassy eyed. I could see from the yeah. stage. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's come a long way from yeah. college. Three beers wouldn't give him a buzz back when we started hanging out. No, it was just a <laughs> warm up in the dorm. Right. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> the the big kicker was the dang auctioneer bullied me, literally was calling me out after, you know, declining to raise my bid again the third time. He started talking crap to me and uh, calling me out in front of the whole audience. <laughs> so he bullied me into continuing to bid. I think I bid like two more times and ended up winning it. And so Ty and I started communicating, you know, through that summer of uh, of 18 and you know, I, I let him know Cable and I had applications in with New Mexico at the time. Didn't know yet whether we'd be drawn. I think it was like two weeks later, found out we did get drawn. 
And Ty was trying to figure out if he could make it to New Mexico, you know, for that particular hunt to come elk hunting with us. My thought all along, and I told shared this with him, was I wasn't nearly as concerned. I wasn't at all really concerned about the filming aspect. I thought it would be cool to hunt with a guy who had been part of, you know, 60 something bow kill or uh, elk, elk bow kills, mm-hmm. you know, in his time as his time as a bow hunter. And I thought it'd be a really cool way to learn something from somebody. Yeah. Not just getting, getting on and killing elk, but doing it on public ground. Right. Sure. Um, a little, a little different than just going on a guided trip to a ranch. So <clears throat> as it turned out, um, he had plenty of things going on that fall uh, and some things, uh, going on kind of behind the scenes that if you'll tune into his podcast, you can learn about. And we basically agreed to push it back a year and apply for Montana and come up to his neck of the woods rather than drag him down into Mexico and try to squeeze a four day hunt into a bunch of other stuff he had going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we stayed in touch over the course of the year and then put our tags in. I told him I've got a buddy I hunt with every year. And do you mind if he comes? And I was like, man, this is your hunt and do whatever you want. And, so Cable and I applied in Montana, ended up getting drawn for the general tag, actually the general combo tag. So we're that was uh, a waste, elk, by the elk way. and deer tag, <laughs> uh, you know, you might still figure it out, but anyway, got drawn and, um, yeah, I guess that's how we ended up here. And yeah, I'm sure as we'll get into Ty took us to a pretty sweet spot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just for folks listening, you know, Montana is one of those States where it's uh totally random, and your odds of getting drawn, well, they're going to go down again as people listen to this podcast, but that's the way it goes in this world. Uh, it's like, you know, 50%. So better odds than most states. You and I put in for the general combo. It is expensive. It's like $1,000 for the out-of-staters. Uh, I, I was pretty ridiculous what Ty told us he pays as a Montana resident. They definitely make the the tourists uh, float the bill, but uh, we're happy to do it. Uh, so we got drawn, and if we didn't get drawn, Chisholm, our, our plan was to go over the counter in Idaho, which is still very close to Ty's neck of the woods and a place that he's hunted previously. One thing I wanted to, oh. to do here, though, is, is get everyone's thoughts on this topic, because we talked a little bit about this over the campfire uh, there at, at our at our base camp, and it's bowhunter education, and we all had different thoughts on this. Um, my personal take is, like, they don't make us take that in Texas, right? Like, you want a bow hunt? Fine. You go buy a bow and you start bow hunting. Maybe they should make you take it um, when you start bow hunting, if you want to bow hunt. Because as as I told you guys, I felt like I was someone going back to take driver's ed at 35 years old after I'd been driving for 20 years. And uh, and like they make you take an online, it's four hours. Then they make you take a field course, it's four hours. I didn't even watch the online videos and pass the test with no problem. So it, to me, it was kind of a waste of time. I could see for how a new hunter, um, like Ty had a different experience. Ty, why don't you talk about when you took it? Cause I know your, your thoughts were completely different from mine. Well, I mean, we all know uh, there's a lot of people out there on the road that probably through a uh, driver's ed class. <laughs> they don't know how to drive. <laughs> and that was kind of my take on it. You know, um, my, my experience was actually the reason I got involved in conservation and, uh-huh. you know, my early, my early archery career, um, I had, I had some losses, you know, I had some things happen that, you know, I shot an elk and lost it and because I had zero mentorship into bow hunting. I basically, I borrowed a golden eagle. If you guys look that up, it's prehistoric. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know if the draw length fit me. I couldn't even tell you if the arrows were matched to the bow. 
like all these little things that are um, unique to archery and bow hunting that aren't necessarily with a rifle um, to the point where when I, when I shot an animal, I didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, and for the bow hunter, your bow hunting listeners, like they know, right? You shoot an animal, it runs off, you got to track it down. Mm-hmm. For me, for me, it was like the second year I bow hunted, I was like, you know, if there was a class out there, if there's some education I had, it would have saved me a lot of heartache in the early stages. And, um, you know, and that's the point you're making, like a new bow hunter could use this information. Yeah. And that's what I was shooting for. But I also knew, you know, and we know today, like if you went to any archery pro shop, um, specifically in the West, like when elk season starts, you know, there's guys that want to bow hunt that don't know. So a week before season, they're buying a brand spanking new bow. They're buying all this new gear and they think they're just going to walk out there and shoot an elk or a deer or an antelope or whatever it is. And that's just not how it works. Like you have to practice, you have to put in your time, you know, you have to learn the different variables in archery equipment. And so for me, my, my thought process was if this was mandatory and everybody had to go to a class and learn and and provided like to your point that you had made, like I didn't, I didn't have to take, I didn't even have to review the, the class, um, you know, materials. I just passed it without even reading anything. Yeah. Um, I turned my four hours into like one hour. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the class has to be worth taking, right. The, the education has to be valuable and maybe, maybe that isn't the case everywhere, but, um, you know, with a broad paintbrush or the bigger picture is, is if the class was put together properly and covered everything, you know, it's going to save a lot of heartache. Um, I know for a fact, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have lost that bull that first year that I bow hunted. And, and, uh, just, just knowing what I know now that elk died mm-hmm. and I would have found it, but I never found it. Cause I didn't know the first damn thing about, you know, tracking an animal. And so, cause I'd always rifle hunted before that you shoot them nine times out of 10, they go down right there. And usually you don't have to track them very far. You yeah. know, you hit them good. So right. my take on it was, is anybody that bow hunts should go through a class. Um, you should learn that, you know, tracking and blood and how to shoot a bow and be proficient with a bow before you're allowed to bow hunt. Um, so that was, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of my, my uh, experience with it. Well, Chisholm at least turned it into, sorry, Chisholm turned it into something cool and went up to like, he did the online part here and then went up to Missoula and actually, um, took the, the field part up there. Right. Yeah. One of the benefits of traveling for business is you end up on a pile of frequent flyer miles and you can, you can go, uh, to Montana for a a long weekend, catch a morning of fly fishing and knock your bow hunter's education out and still have enough points to get back to Montana to, to go elk hunting. So. <laughs> what did you think of the course, Chisholm? And, and um, keep in mind, like Montana is, I think, one of 13 states that requires a bow hunter education course, and and all all those states are, you know, they reciprocate wherever you take it. Uh, but like like we like I said, us Texans, it's not required here. Yeah, um, I I didn't think it was that big of an imposition, man. I, you know, I'll be honest, this you know, with the Risk of sounding arrogant, I don't recall learning anything particularly novel, um, but I also don't recall learning anything 
when I took my hunter safety course, which is required in Texas, you know, back when I was uh, 28 years old, you know, the law here, I can't remember the cutoff date. I want to say it's in the seventies somewhere. If you were born after 1960 or 70 something, then you have to have hunter's ed, but the law didn't come into effect until like the nineties. And by that point I'd been trained by a couple of Marines to handle firearms and, you know, how to hunt since I was, <laughs> since the earliest memories that I have, you know, for well over 10 years at that point. So, you know, I didn't learn much from that, uh, but I think it's something everybody should take. And uh, I think with the same thing with bow hunting, I, I think really to, you know, to Ty's point, you, you don't know what you didn't know, uh, you know, b- before you learn these things, right? Like you reach a point, and anything you do, whether it's hunting or your profession, um, uh, even parenting, probably to an extent, like, yeah, after doing something for a long time, you, you, you just sort of, you know it and it's part of who you are and it's readily accessible. Right. But to the person who's like, and, and we want more of these people, right. We want hunter recruitment is one of the biggest issues in, in the, in the outdoor community. We want people to jump in there and we certainly want them to have a platform to get some of the basics, like to Ty's point, like what's going to happen when I run an arrow through this animal, even with a really well-placed shot, what do I need to do next? Mm-hmm. Wait 30 minutes, find the first blood, find your arrow, right? Like just walking somebody through those steps so they don't just charge out of there thinking the animal should have just fallen down dead and either just leave or, you know, not know where to begin tracking it. And, and some of the things I, you know, we've talked about the archery aspect of bowing on your uh, show kind of at length before, but, um, you know, that's something that I'm borderline obsessive about, you know, the vast majority of guys and, and candidly, a lot of bow shops don't do a good job of teaching their, their customers, how important all the little details, like Ty was saying of, you know, perfectly mating your entire arrow setup, everything from how much weight you have on the front of the arrow, to how much you have on the back to the spine that you're shooting to how your cutting of the arrow changes that spine and how all that mates to the exact poundage and draw length of your bow, you know, et cetera, how important your grip is and how it'd be repeatable and, you know, how to fix it. If you're canting it, it, you know, those are things that you can lose, you can lose a lot of animals and wound a lot of animals uh, if you're not paying attention to all that. And even when you are, even once you've become maybe a master of this, things are still going to go South every now and then. So, you know, if it takes everybody having to take the, I guess my thought is if it takes everybody having to take the course, you know, the simplest path is to say the law says everybody has to take the course. And if that's what it takes to get everybody, at least that introductory base level knowledge to, you know, save the wounding of or losing of a few animals, it was a small price to pay. Yeah, I totally agree from that standpoint because I think we lose hunters who uh, lose animals can't deal with the heartbreak and they're like well that, that was just too upsetting i don't want to do that again so uh certainly educational i i just have to go back to the beginning and say you know if they're going to make you do it they should do it when you start bow hunting we're going to work in a quick break here uh that segment was proudly brought to you by lone star ag credit you know land that's the one thing they're not making any more of not in montana not in texas not anywhere but we all want it right uh, whether that's for recreating for hunting, fishing, or just to get the hell out of the big city. Whatever the case, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. They've been helping their borrowers 
finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAdCredit.com. When we come back, we head into Montana's high country in search of bugling bulls on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I don't mind things that don't matter these days. Time I spend on worry never pays down the leaves are changing. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. I'm Earl Dibbles Jr. I'm a country boy. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I wake up, put a dip in, crack a cold one, put my boots in my overalls on. This is the country boy song. I like the gig frogs, like the good hogs, like the swim. <laughs> there he is, the country boy himself, Earl Dibbles Jr., bringing us back. On the Lone Star Outdoor Show, episode 500, the Elk Edition 2019. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, thank you so much for being here. As we're about to continue the conversation with Ty Stubblefield of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and my good friend and elk hunting buddy Chisholm Cook. But before we do that, this segment of the show is brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. And Rudy's True Texas-Style Barbecue, where you can stop in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner after the hunt. Maybe you just got off the lake. And remember, wash down that delicious barbecue with an ice-cold Lone Star beer. All right. Uh, Well, let's pick it back up here with Ty and Chisholm. And Chisholm, this one's for you specifically because, you know, you and I have done New Mexico and Colorado, and we've packed in eight miles. But when we've killed animals... We've used horses. We've had a, a Wrangler available via a satellite phone. We give them the GPS coordinates once we get the elk quartered and you know on a trail, and they'll come pack it out, which is great because then you don't have to spend two entire days of your hunt moving meat. Um, and while I love that, I mean, work smarter, not harder, right? Um, I know that you were really looking forward to the physical nature of this hunt because everything was going in and out on our backs, no matter what, on this hunt. And uh, that was something you were looking forward to. Yeah, this endeavor for me since the day we you know, took off into it in 2015 was, I'd say, honestly, more about the physical, you know, mental, even spiritual challenge of, of this type of hunting uh, than it was about, you know, killing the elk, right, or, or bringing home the meat or the antlers or any of that. And, um, you know, the hunts we've done have been hard. We, they've been, you know, unguided. Yeah, we have an outfitter pick us in, but from there we were putting, you know, in New Mexico as many as 12 miles a day on looking for elk. So it's not as though we hadn't physically challenged ourselves. And when you kill a bull and a drop camp set up, you still got to get that bull from wherever you killed it. And it's usually not right off a trail mm-hmm. to a trail. <laughs> Right. So we've put, packed meat, and we've packed meat as far as a mile and a half. Uh, I know I might bowl that first year. So, but to me, the the sort of pinnacle of that is um, like a true backpack hunt, where you know you go in more than a mile or two, 
um, you know, just past where your day trippers are, but maybe not quite as far as the horse guys can get with everything on your back and, um, you know, set up camp. And if you need to pull camp, uh, break camp and move and, you know, stay on the elk that way. And then, you know, when you do get it done, you know, you've got to get a bull plus camp ultimately back out of that place. And that's the way, you know, Ty and his crew have pretty much always hunted uh, for the most part. Um, certainly their wilderness hunts. And so that was another thing I really wanted to do. It was like a legit backpack style hunt. And so we did that this time. We had a little help from Jack, mm-hmm. size llama. Um, and we didn't end up needing to pack up break camp daily and, and you know, be that mobile because like I said, Ty took us to a heck of a spot. Yeah. And, and but Ty- other than that, I, you know, we definitely achieved the goal of packing everything in and then all that stuff plus a bull back out close to four miles so yeah uh, there was achievement in that well and this you know i think i've been like backpacking for i did the math the other day because i actually had my dad and his buddy on that started this mountain man trip which is how i got suckered into you know falling in love with the mountains to begin with i think it was like 17 18 years ago um this was the most attention i've ever paid to my gear list and like chisholm you even were talking about like when you're counting your the weight of your food, it needs to have a certain uh, calorie output to make it even worth carrying in. Yeah, for sure. Most of the most of the things you find, people will recommend like 100 calories per ounce. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, if you're running the wrong ratio there, you're going to end up burning more than you're than than you're fueling yourself with. So yeah, yeah, that stuff becomes important. And so our, our you know our goals was like 50 pounds. I mean, I know that's what I didn't want to go over. I think you were kind of right there. Uh, Ty, you hunt with camp on your back a lot. At least, you know, you, you have, um, especially with born and raised, you guys are moving camp. You have it on your back every day. And, um, and you have that thing, your backcountry kit dialed into what you said, 36 pounds or something like that. Yeah. When you get things dialed down and, you know, you obviously it takes years to weed through proper equipment and, you know, your sleeping system and that, uh, like without a full bladder of water, my pack right about 36 pounds you know, with food, camp, and you know, everything on my back that I need to survive. Um, so you, you can hike around in the woods for a long time with 36 pounds on your back. Mm-hmm. Um, you start throwing in camera gear, uh, you know, and you start looking at 10-day hunts. It gets a little, you know, obviously it gets heavier, but, you know, for a six, seven-day hunt, you, your pack could, can be down around 36 pounds. And I already know the answer to this, but for our listeners, Ty, what is the what is the farthest you've ever packed out a bull on your back? Twelve miles, <laughs> unintentionally. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. sure your buddies were thrilled about that. Yeah, it wasn't very popular for. I'm probably still not. Yeah. I think one of them but even yeah, faked a back injury. Oh, two of them faked back injury, and one of them faked a blister. <laughs> so three of us. There were six of us all together. Three of us. I hope they listen to this. <laughs> three of us uh, pack bull and camp out, and the other three just pack their camp out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Mm. But what happened there was, is you know, we were we were in Colorado, and we were a long ways in, farther than we should have been to begin with. And uh, one of the camps, we had a packer lined up to pack the elk out, um, but we didn't have a communication device. And one of the one of the uh, neighboring camps there in the valley said oh we've got a sat phone uh if you guys want to use it you can you know call the packer and we're like oh perfect we're covered so 
when the time came and I, I ended up shooting that bull the last day of the hunt and the next day was packing out um that night a bunch of snow started falling so when i shot it uh the guys ran down to the camp to use the sat phone and everybody was gone everybody had packed all their gear up and stashed it and left yeah. well they had the sat phone and so they knew a big storm was coming and uh they bailed uh, <laughs> consequently we didn't know that the snow was coming wow yeah 12 mile with uh 12 miles with a bull on your back that's uh that's putting in the work right there um let's do this let's let's talk about our hunt we'll, we'll start with uh so chisholm and i both flying to missoula type picks us up at the airport uh we take a, a care of a few last minute essentials we had to go by sportsman's warehouse to actually um show them our our proof of bow hunter education then they gave us our license the other thing to think about for anyone that's flying uh, to a backcountry hunt destination is you know you can't take fuel on the airplane so uh you're gonna have to pick up your propane or you know whatever it is for your jet boil um at a local sporting goods store so think about that also since we knew we had jack uh the llama we were able to pack a little bourbon so ran by the uh the liquor store there and then we picked up the llama and we headed out ty what were your expectations about this area i know you had hunted in it previously yeah i'd hunted there before um the last time i was in there which was middle of september uh we got in there and it ended up dumping like 15 inches of snow on us um we hiked in and there was already snow and it dumped another 15 18 inches so usually when you get inclement weather like that it it affects uh elk vocalization and Mm -hmm. so it wasn't off the charts. It was pretty slow, and we had to work really hard to track down some elk. Um, so going in this year, I've, I've had a buddy that's hunted it regularly, and every year he he's this guy. He's the guy that whatever he says, you can divide in half. So <laughs> if he said he called in, if he called in fifteen bulls, it was probably six or seven. Right. Um, if uh, the buck was 180 inches, it was probably 110. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, he told me how awesome the spot was and how opening week is always off the charts for him. And he said, I'm not going in there this year. I'm going to go somewhere else. So you should, you should take those guys in there. And uh, I'm like, all right, well, if he called in 12 bulls last year, if we can call in six, that's great. <laughs> you know? Right. And, uh, and so my expectations, you know, I and, and quite honestly, I I never really have like, I never really have this high expectation or low expectation wherever I go. And a big part of that comes from like hunting with camp on your back. You go in there, you start beating the brush and what you find is what you find. And if it's good, you stay. If it's, if it's not good, you just keep moving. And, and that's why we used to hunt with camp on our back is. We'd go into new areas all the time, and if the elk weren't screaming and weren't bugling, or you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get any. If there weren't any, even any elk there, you had to keep moving and find them. Um, so going into this area, I did know that it was, you know, relative to Montana mountains, it was pretty easy country to hunt because there wasn't these giant mountains. It was, it's, you know, it's not flat, but it's definitely not three or four thousand foot elevation climbs every day yeah i mean we never went over ten thousand feet which was very different i mean our base camp in new mexico and i know it's kind of the same where you were in idaho last week 
you know, we were camping at like 10.5. So for Chisholm and I, that was, that was pretty nice. I'm not going to lie. Yo, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, <laughs> I love, you know, getting into elk and not having to climb super steep mountains. Like that was pretty rad. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so like, you know, my expectations were just honestly to, to have a good time. And I, and I thought if we got in there and, um, could work a few bulls early on, great. And if not, then I had a plan B, C and D. Um, consequently we stuck with plan A the entire time. We're going to pause it right here. Uh, when we come back, we'll get into whether or not the bulls were fired up for opening weekend. Uh, also, the highs, lows, the hits, the misses, the blood, sweat, and tears that go into a week-long backcountry hunt, uh, plus some other funny antidotes as well. Uh, that segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Hey, if you're trying to introduce a youngster into the great outdoors, uh, a week-long backcountry elk hunt, probably not the right way to go about that. <laughs> but if you want to keep them warm, high, dry, comfortable, so that they enjoy their initial experience then check out the all seasons feeders big chingone i've got one on my dear lease i can put the whole family all three kids and the wife in there and have a great day watching wildlife and uh even get lucky enough to take a deer yeah it's that cool it's the big chingone it's got carpet cup holders windows for rifle and bow blinds they've literally thought of everything and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com We'll be right back with more of episode 500, the Elk Edition, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hi, I'm Luke Anderson, the owner of Colt Construction. I'm also a proud outdoorsman and proud to support the Lone Star Outdoor Show. With roots dating back generations of hard work in the outdoors, I take pride in serving the citizens of the Lone Star State. There are tons of so-called roofing contractors in North Texas, but having a qualified, experienced, trustworthy one to deal with is few and far between. We want to be your one-stop shop to leave it better than we found it and have a relationship that goes past just improving your home or business. We run on three main principles. Quality, because quality comes with a price. We want to do it right the first time and use the best materials. Integrity, because you want to know the true condition of your home or business. And I'm going to be honest and tell you exactly what I think. Grit, because I've swung the hammer, bottom to top, I've done the labor. I know how the system works. We specialize in many different systems, including metal, clay tile, flat roofing, and good old shingles. You can find us at coltbuilds.com, our Facebook page, or our phone number is 817-789-7588. Colt Construction, dirty hands, clean money, your blue-collar guy to call. When I crawl out of this cold motel bed, Jason Eady bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, thanks to Lone Star Beer. And Hoff Power Polaris as well. Cable Smith, thanking you guys and gals for being here. Uh, it is a treat to be talking outdoors with you on this little old milestone edition of the show, episode 500. We're talking all things backcountry elk hunting with Ty Stubblefield of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and my longtime elk hunting buddy, Chisholm Cook. And we're going to get back into the week that was our trip to Montana here in just a second. But first, 
This segment is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'd like to personally invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. For more info, just head over to biggame.org. Check us out. We'd love to have you. Um, with that being said, let's get back into it here with Ty and Chisholm. And Chisholm, as we are driving up to the trailhead, literally pulling into the parking lot, we hear Ty say, oh my God. Uh, what initially went through your head? What it reminded me of was our discussion about him not having a real good handle on the age and wear on his tires and <laughs> suspension on his llama trailer. So I thought we had, I thought we were about to be pulling over to do some, some maintenance. <clears throat> and uh, we may not even have a spare. I can't remember, Ty. But uh, he's like looking in we, his rear we, view and looking at his butt. We had a spare. It it just didn't have any air in it. <laughs> ah, okay, that's what it was. I knew there was something about the spare that was problematic. Yeah. But uh, he's looking all around in his rear view and in the side mirrors and stuff. And what is it, dude? What's wrong? I forgot my boots. Oh. And the first thing I thought was, man, we're turning around. It's eight o'clock. <laughs> but I would have been like. The dude soldiered on. I would have been okay with getting his boots at that point, but we were three and a half hours from Missoula and literally just minutes from from getting out of the truck. So, yeah, that was. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess in retrospect, maybe it could have could have been worse as for the group. It, it certainly sucked for Ty. <laughs> well, yeah, and we had inclement weather on the way, and, and but in Ty's defense, you know, he uh, he did appear a little bit forgetful on this trip, but he did also just move his house like entirely like like the week that before we arrived so i think everything was out of sorts and out of place so uh, he hunted in tennis shoes for the first two days which was uh, i'm sure very <laughs> uncomfortable there's some funny videos i'm not gonna lie it was it wasn't that bad it, you know i mean the tennis shoes were light i was able to move through the forest very quickly um with those light tennis shoes um they did leak like a screen door but uh, the good part about that was the water came out pretty easily. Yeah. I, I, I have a question about that. Were your feet not numb from the cold, the cold water? I mean, because, you know, as you all know, and we'll probably talk about, my boots leaked some uh, throughout the trip. But in and, and general, they weren't insulated. So, I mean, my, my feet in the mornings were so numb they hurt. How If your feet were soaking wet and that water was never more than 40 degrees like is it just a matter of having done this as long as you have that your skin is thicker like your feet didn't hurt no they weren't cold until like that third day when it the weather turned colder mm. yeah first couple of days weren't like cold i mean you know i don't know what they were probably mid 50s but uh that that next day when the wintry mix was called for in the forecast no. that uh yeah they started getting a little cold that day certainly Certainly would have been cold the next couple of days because I believe it rained the next two or three days. Oh yeah. Well, and and you got to go back to town and and uh, meet your wife for a chicken fried steak, so it worked out for you. Uh, minus the uh, you know eight miles you had to hike in and out to go get those boots. Were you surprised, Ty, at the amount of action we saw upon starting the hunt? Because boom, like we're there. We hike in in the dark on Friday night. Season opens on Saturday. The 7th, which is actually later than most states, and I think even late for Montana, but for whatever reason, they opened it on the 7th this year. 
Um, and, and that opening day, I mean, there's bugles going on. Uh, we get into, you know, we get into elk and Chisholm and I are like, hell yeah, this is awesome. Uh, we're, we're hearing more elk than we would normally ever hear in New Mexico and end up, you end up calling in a, a very aggressive bull on that first day. Well, before the first day, I mean, we were hiking in, we left, we left the rig. We literally hit the trailhead hiking in and had to turn on our headlamps. So we hiked in in the dark. Um, and when we were getting close to where I wanted to camp, bulls were screaming right where, right where we wanted to be. Right. And so I'm like, well, we can't, we can't walk in there in the dark and blow them out of there. So we picked, I, I knew there was a little side trail and there was a meadow just a little ways up that side trail. So I'm like, let's go up and camp right on the edge of that meadow up there. And as we walked up to it in the dark, we blew a herd of elk out of it. So yeah. I'm like, we're in a pretty good place. I, I think this is a good place. <laughs> Back to that first day, though, you know, Ty, you, you get this bull all fired up, and y'all get into this screaming match, and sure enough, you're like, he's coming. You guys get set up. And and this was some a new dynamic for Chisholm and I, honestly, and we kind of struggled with it. Uh, we didn't know we would, but... Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, uh, two shooters, one caller. Chisholm and I typically we rotate days, and one of us calls for the other one. The other one hunts, and um, so this was a, a new dynamic. And I think we actually maybe that first setup was our best one of the week. Uh, so the bull comes hollering, you know, he's screaming, he's coming, and uh, and Chisholm, what happened at that point from your perspective? He was down in one heck of a nasty hole. You know, we've talked about it being pretty easy country, but there were definitely a few spots that were gnarly. And he was down in one of them, not surprising, because yeah. um, I got a decent look at him, and I'm pretty confident he was a mature bull. Um, but he was, <clears throat> I guess, right in front of us was this rock outcropping on this pretty steep hillside. And we were kind of to the right of it. And uh, I thought I had noticed the wind switch back and forth a couple times on us as we had worked our way to him. And so I, we didn't do a good job through pretty much out the whole hunt of communicating before we split up. Right. So I wanted to go down the left-hand side of this rock outcropping so I could stay safe wind-wise. And I think when we moved, and I've tried to think through this, I'm pretty sure he was calling from the same spot. We didn't have him coming yet. He was just standing his ground and just screaming back at Ty. So I buzzed around the left-hand side, hoping to kind of, worked my way to him as he kept calling and uh and you came down with me and we got to the bottom of that route rock outcropping which i think was just about where he was and noticed now he was actually moving uphill um he was going to tie so now i had to turn back around around about halfway back up the outcropping and jumped up on top of it and this was like you know if the hillside was a i don't know whatever it was a 50 or 60 degree slope 70 degree slope this rock outcropping was like 12 foot tall up off of it. So I climbed up onto that and I could see off the other side, which is the path he was taking to get the tie. And I mean, just as soon as I got there and sort of assessing the situation, I realized I'm silhouetted. I'm getting a ton of sunshine right on me because the sun was setting over to the left. I guess this thing faced kind of Southwest. And um, all I had, there was a little bit of shade from one tree growing out the side of this rock outcropping. And so I tried to tuck myself right at the edge of the rock outcropping, right in that shade, hoping that would give me enough silhouette cover to not get busted. And I mean, as soon as I got set up like that, I see him coming through this pine tree. Mm -hmm. 
So I go ahead and draw, and he catches that movement, and he hangs up behind that pine tree. And so now I'm at full draw, um, and, you know, it, tried to just kind of relax at it with my bow kind of down a little bit, and but he was locked on me, and Ty made another call, and he looked that direction, and I, all I needed was two steps, and I had him at what ended up being, I think it was a 12-and-a-half-yard shot. Would have had a 12-and-a-half-yard shot, yeah. but like 10, but, but from 10 feet over his head, so it would have been this really cool, just like... <laughs> Made for TV hero moment. <laughs> In retrospect, and and Ty will attest to this. I, I should have had more of a killer instinct on that moment and just taken a step to the right, cleared myself from that bush, and hoped that he held just long enough to stick him because it would have been a really tough shot to screw up too badly at that that range. I think that if he had given me a second and a half after I stepped out before breaking out of there, I probably could have put a good arrow in him, but. Yeah, I held tight, hoping that Ty would get him to to take a couple more steps. And man, those hitters are smart. They don't like. They must teach in elk school to cover up the vitals because uh, once they've got a reason to hang out, man, they always do it where they're protected. It seems. Mm-hmm. Well, so he boogers and and he heads back down the hill. At this point, I'm off to your left, downhill of you, and I see him coming, and he's starting to he's starting to trot. And I just give him the old meh, and he stops. And, you know, I don't have a chance to range him at this point. And there is a little brush. I'm thinking, oh, I can maybe let one, I can maybe weave one through there. And so I let one fly and uh, hit a twig. And, you know, even Ty, who was up the hill out of sight, knew immediately when he heard it. He's like, yeah, that hit a, hit a branch and uh, went right underneath him. And out of our lives, he went forever. Uh, so, we at least got a shot on that first day. Uh, heard more bugling, I think, on the way out of there. We left like three bulls screaming. And then um, day two, let's see. Uh, I think you guys probably have a better recollection of, of day two than I do. I don't I don't really remember uh, the days. It was uh, the Hoochie Mama day. Oh, gosh. Okay, yeah. So that was awesome and sad at the same time. Uh, so Ty laughs at me. I bring I break out the Hoochie Mama, and I, and I have a uh, – Supreme confidence in that call because it's called bulls in before guys who are hardcore like Ty and who can use a diaphragm proficiently think it's uh you know a, <laughs> the redheaded stepchild of of elk calls uh, but it's basically a, a dog a dog squeaky toy yeah just to clarify for those who don't know what it is that calls an elk it's made by Primos and it does work. every you know slap in the world has one uh, including myself and like I said it's uh, the first elk I ever killed. Called it in with that thing, uh, mixing in a little bugling, which um, I didn't even know what the hell I was doing that first year. Still trying to figure it out. Uh, but Ty, there were times on this hunt where you looked at me and said, "Give him some of that hoochie mama. Don't deny it." Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to put in this into perspective for your listeners. <laughs> bringing a hoochie mama to elk camp in Montana is like bringing uh, the tee for a t-ball game to a major league baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your listeners know. Yeah. But, but oh you my God. there was the ball off of a tee. You can definitely hit the ball off of a tee. Uh-huh. <laughs> With that said, you are right. I cannot deny. I asked you to use the tee a few times. <laughs> yeah. And on the second day, we, I think we had sat down for lunch. We made a fire, uh, warm ourselves up. It was pretty chilly. I think temperatures were generally in the 40s during the day and got down to the upper 20s at night. So 
it was chilly. We made a fire, and Chisholm had actually gone off into a, like a meadow to, I think, use his uh, inreach to try to text his wife, let her know what was going on. And, and I actually just hit the hoochie mama to get his attention to just tell him, hey, we're ready to get up and start hunting again, and I'll be damned if a bull that we had put to bed, you know, we knew he was in the area. We'd heard him bugle. He went to bed, you know, mid-morning, and we're like, all right, we'll just hang out until he fires off again. And that hoochie mama, I'll be damned if he didn't fire off to that. It it worked. It for sure worked. And and so then what happened next, Ty, in your, in your perspective? You know, you're watching all this unfold. You're calling. The bull really doesn't want anything to do with any sound that's not coming from that, that dog chew toy. Yeah. When, so Chisholm got up there. We kind of like the bull's bugling from his bed. And typically, when a bull bugles from his, their bed, they're not really going anywhere. Yeah. Um, so you have time, and so we were kind of lackadaisically putting our packs back on and getting ready to go over towards him. And you'd hit that hoochie mama a few more times, and uh, <laughs> your pack was sitting there. And I think you started to put your pack on. I don't remember if you started to put it on or whatever, but you threw it back on the ground. And I said. He he's coming like yeah. now. Yeah. This bull is coming, and you looked at me, and then you just took off running, <laughs> and then you were gone. What is she doing? I never know what she's doing back there. Uh, I had to go kill an so, elk, Ty. <laughs> right? No, I, I, I you have my support on that. Yeah. And so, so Chisholm and I, I got my pack on. Chisholm and I start working around, kind of circling around to the right, and. He would not respond to my calls at all. Like I would cow call. I gave the most beautiful, subtle, seductive cow calls that I could do, and he didn't care. He wanted that hoochie. Yeah. And uh, and so it was working. Um, I didn't see what happened, but I did hear what happened. I know he was bugling every time he'd blow it, and then all of a sudden, he wasn't. Yeah. So what happened was, is I was like, you know, well, I'll just close the distance, and then you know, I'm sure in your in your uh, experience, Ty, you get into a situation, you're looking for that perfect tree or that perfect bush to set up behind. And I just kept walking and I never found it. And I just couldn't find the right setup. So I kept trying to go a little further just to get into the, you know, find the perfect cover. About that time, uh, the bull walks out, I guess, out of his bedroom and into this meadow, meadow at the bottom of the ridge there. And uh, he, he looks right at the tree that i I mean, I see him coming, and I get behind the closest tree, and he's looking at me, and uh, and that was that was all she wrote. You know, I I went, I was too aggressive, went too far. Uh, he was going to come, and and I screwed the pooch on that one. So, you know, I've always tried to be an aggressive elk hunter in that situation, and this is one of the things I'll take away from the hunt is knowing when the bull is uh, fired up enough or irritated enough to be coming full throttle in your direction. And, you know, in those situations, maybe just I learned, you know, hang back a little bit more and, and let the game come to you. Yeah, I, I I like to use the analogy of the Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler. you mm-hmm. got no one to hold them, no one to fold them, no one to walk, and no one to run. And it's it just, it nails it. Like, there are times where you got to be super aggressive, push in on them hard, take some chances. Um, and then there are times where you just stand there holding your cards, waiting for them to make the move. And, and, uh, that was one of those situations where you just sit there and hold your cards because they're going to make, you know, there's no doubt he was going to make that move. Um, it's, but that all takes experience. You know, you have to go through those and make some mistakes before you start figuring out, you know, when to walk, when to run. 
very educational for me. And then, and then on the other end of the spectrum, as far as, you know, when you think a bull is, is moving away from you, sometimes I know people can have a tendency to be like, oh, well, we, we're just going to give up. But your philosophy is, no, just keep putting pressure on them, push them, push them, push them, until they get annoyed enough to turn around and, and fight. We learned that Rose, hunting Roosevelt's, you know, on, on the co- West Coast, where those Roosevelt's live in really thick country. You know, it's, it's rainforest. It's thick. Um, they're more aggressive. And I think they're more aggressive because they're not as a visual an animal. They're more vocal mm-hmm. because they, you know, with, with their terrain being as brushy as it is, they don't see as far. And so we learned, learned that, that if you pushed on Roosevelt elk, he's he's going to get pissed off and turn around and come back to fight and for the most part that holds true with rockies as well like if you just keep pushing on keep pushing on them um they're going to eventually get pissed off get tired of being messed with and they're going to turn to fight uh and sometimes that happens in a mile sometimes that happens in 12 miles you know Mm -hmm. but uh it just depends on how hard you want to push and how far you want to go and and sometimes um sometimes it doesn't work you know, there's there's been times where we pulled that stunt and the bull actually left his cows and just left left the area. Hmm. Um, you just pick pick your ball up and go play another game. Yeah. Well, so so day three, the weather's coming. Ty's like, I you know, I got to go get my boots. So he he bounces and and I was really excited about you know not the opportunity to hunt without Ty, but just like, hey, now Chisholm and I we've had success before. I was like, this is our chance to like rub it in Ty's face if we can kill an elk while he's gone. And uh, and so Chisholm and I head off into the woods that morning. There's bull bugling and, and Ty heads down the trail. And, and Chisholm, going back to that putting pressure on a bull, that's exactly what we did with that first bull that morning. And I'm going to let you talk about that experience. I think going even back to the first bull we really made that play on, it was sort of similar where that bull at one point maybe sounded like he was going away from us and Ty got him to stop and then not only stop but come back. Here we had a bull that we thought was moving right by camp and then away from us um, heading north. And as it turns out, Ty told us when he got back the next, that night that we left the bull like 200 yards from camp. Right. Chasing a different bugle. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, picture like these ridges – in this particular country, they're they're kind of long, and and not crazy steep, you know, real wide across the top, and then there's little kind of mini drainages off of each side of them. And so if you're like working the side hill of one of these ridges long ways, you'll be crossing like ditches, right? And each each ditch is like a daisy chain of little meadows, you know, and and uh, wallows. So the country is just insane, but. So if you're walking, working away across this hill, you keep coming across this string of little little meadows. They might be 20 yards, 30 yards wide with a wallow right in the middle, or they might be 75, 80, 100 yards wide. Um, but they're just these little openings and otherwise really thick timber. And so we're chasing that bull, and I'm just bugling like heck at him, and you know he's chuckling, so I'm chuckling. And but there was I know there was one point he clearly stopped and let out a couple bugles at us. You know, then the next one you heard he was clearly 75 yards further than he had been mm-hmm. so we kept moving took off again i'm being very mindful to the wind and noticing that it's swirling and uh sure enough we get across from him on the last or one of these little meadows it's only I don't know, 50 yards wide he couldn't have been 75 yards from us just inside the timber where 
you knew exactly where he was. You just couldn't see him. And he, I think, bugled like three times from that spot. Gnarly, loud, chuckly, aggressive, mad bugles. Um, and then after, like five seconds after the last time he bugled, I felt just a little bitty breath of wind on the back of my neck. Got my checker out, and sure enough, it was going straight at where I'd heard that bugle from. Uh, it lasted two seconds, and the wind was back in my face, but we didn't hear him make another sound. So, yeah, um, you know, there's, just, there's virtually no doubt to me that we got winded, and he decided that he didn't want to fight whatever that whatever he just smelled. Yeah, well, and, and he didn't he didn't want to fight a bunch of buttheads. You you left out the part where we basically quit on that bull because he kept going further and further away, and we were close the distance. And finally, he shut up, and I was like, "All right, I gotta take care of my morning business." And we were we were like coming up with another plan, and he fired off. Remember that? And then we were like, "Oh, fine. yeah, that's true." Yeah, between between the time we stopped him once and the time we stopped him the second time, we almost bailed. Yeah, there was another bull bugling farther up uh, above us. Uh, up towards the top of the ridge, and you know, like you said, he gave out one more call, and I said, "Man, let's push him and see if we can see if we can turn him." And I, I think I think we had. I, I really think if I hadn't if it hadn't been for that one breath of wind that blew me right at him, yeah, uh, I think we had that bull. Yeah, because I, I actually was I did check the wind, and my wind was you know from where he bugled the last time, he wasn't going to smell me because I was just a little bit uphill from you. That that swirl from from where you were calling uh, totally screwed us, and and the perf it was a perfect setup. I mean, if he came out, it was going to be like an eight yard broadside shot. It was I, I thought we were going to kill that bull, and I, I really did. But that day, man, we got into like four different bulls. We were chasing uh chasing pretty much chasing bulls all day. Chisholm, uh, we we put one to bed for lunch again. We're sitting out in this meadow sharing uh some one of my favorite backcountry snacks is those little smoked oysters. Uh, y'all should definitely add those to your pack if uh, if you haven't already. And and then, sure enough, here he goes. He fires off, and it, the game's on. And uh, and I'll talk and I'll you know give you my perspective of it. You know, we work our way down maybe 300 yards. Um, he's bugling every time Chisholm's bugling, and we we meet him in this meadow. And you you see him. I don't I don't see him. I've got a bunch of brush obstructing my view. And then you're like, he's right there, 20 yards, and I'm like, I'm frozen. Um, so that's 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 my view at that point in time. What I don't know what was exactly going through your head, Chisholm. If you thought I should maybe take out, you know, take a step out and try to take a shot, but ultimately the bull spooked. At, he ran probably 20 yards down the hill, and then and then you started raking the tree and bugling and got his attention back, and he made this wide arc. And this all happens in the span of, oh, I don't know, a minute or so. And I was so, like, pinned there um, because he's looking at me that I never I never had a chance to range anything. So he makes this arc, and I just decide it's either range him or come to full draw. And, you know, I've replayed this in my mind a hundred times, obviously, since the moment. Um, but I just decided to come to full draw and, and shoot him downhill for 30 yards, uh, middle of the body. And he was actually, you know, we ranged it afterwards, 46 yards, and that arrow went right underneath the vitals so uh out of all the moments on the trip that's probably the one that i would like back the most but i think probably everybody has has a similar moment on on an elk hunt and that was mine for sure i want it back for you too yeah <laughs> but uh you know stuff happens out there for sure i it was a tough spot you know as you started telling that i i remember i had mentioned at some point during the hunt i think maybe the first day 
I heard Ranella once or a few times, Stephen Ranella from Mediator talking about how he likes to get on elk and just stay close to them, uh, you know, downwind of them and wait for something to happen. You know, I, Cable was kind of confused by that idea. Uh, I think it like runs contrary to every uh, instinct of Ty, you know, the way they like to hunt. And I kind of had always thought of it as maybe more of a, of a, of a long range play, like muzzleloader rifle hunting, where maybe you've got a herd of elk that are fairly easy to find visually. And, um, you know, I didn't really know whether it applied to what we were doing, but I think throughout the hunt, we definitely found where if we could figure them out as they were going to bed or maybe the last time they bugle from their bed, one thing that really worked for us was just hanging within four or 500 yards of that spot, mm-hmm. having lunch, building a fire. You guys would take your naps. And at some point they'd bugle and, and we would go, you know, depending on how it sounded, make a plan and, that's basically what we'd done here. We'd heard, I think, a couple bugles around that meadow, and it got really, really quiet, you know, late after late morning at that point. And then, sure enough, we're sitting there for an hour and a half. He fired off. You know, if I could do it over again, um, I think I would have told you because I, like you said, I peered around this corner and there he was, and I was like, dude, don't move. He's right there. I should have told you he's 20 yards broadside. Draw your bow. Take a step to the right and take a shot. Um, your problem was you couldn't see him. Yeah, you just knew he was going in the open, staring at us. And so I went back to try to rattle him up, you know, and coax him to, to move for you. But a lot like the shot that I, you know, I think probably could have taken had I taken one step to the right on that big bull on the first day. If I had just told you exactly where he was, you could have drawn your peep, lined your drawn your bow, lined your peep, and your sight up. And it wouldn't have taken long to assess your target and. You know, the twenty-yard pin would have gotten it done from there. Anything it might have been a little high, which would have been okay because he'd have been like right under us. Yeah. You know, the only other thing I might say is that you know it would have been useful to have tried to range across the meadow while you were pinned. But again, you you couldn't see him, so you didn't know what he was looking at, and so I don't blame you for basically staying frozen. Um, but it definitely would have been. You know, helpful to have range just the width of that thing and then know, okay, the farthest out shot I would have would be 45 and you know, maybe that would have helped. But yeah. it's just one of those things where we heard him bugling from tender, timber and it was like as soon as we got to the edge of this drop-off he was in, we didn't know until we got to it that it was wide open and he was standing in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so One interesting thing Ty would would talk about was, you know, the movements you can and can't get away with when, you, you know, you're trying to come to full draw on these things. I mean, not just coming to full draw, but all of your movements in the woods. They'll overlook some slow, subtle movements. They may not see that, but they definitely will see a fast, you know, a fast move, whether it's your step or your draw or, you know, turning your head, like any fast movement they're going to see. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think like if you have, if you have your range finder right by your chest on some kind of lanyard or right by your, you know, your side of your ribs and you can just, Without reaching out from the silhouette of your body, just ease your hand up to your eyeball. A lot of the time, you can probably get away with that. At the same time, Ty made this clear throughout, and I thought about making the point already in this discussion. Like, there are guide rails, as he calls them, rules of the road, but anything can happen in any given day, in any given encounter or set of circumstances. So, you know, what might work one day in the exact same scenario, and a different bull might pick you out for it, you know. You got to do what you can. I guess what I'm getting at is there's kind of an art to all of this. Oh, yeah. In the hold them or fold them thing. Like, you might have a bull coming, which we had several times, 
where we're convinced that bull was five foot inside the timber and had come to us and for whatever reason hung up and bugled at us as he walked away. Yeah. He didn't get winded. We don't think we got steam, you know, and it was a situation where it was like, he's coming, so we're going to stand our ground and let him walk right into our lap, and he didn't. You know, vice versa. There were times where we pushed him and got busted, and the bull gave us, like, three more opportunities. So, you know, yeah. there's there's things you can plan a hunt around and expect, but then you know, time made the point throughout the week. <laughs> Anybody who tells you they know exactly what's going to happen and how something's going to work out is just full of it because every elk's unique. I mean, you can hear it from the way they bugle. Every elk is different. They, you know, there's definitely some trends to their behavior, lots of trends to their behavior, but, um, you know, on any given day, you might catch one that's ready to charge in and die on three separate occasions. And, you know, every other bull in the, on the mountains trying to run from you. So. Yeah. And maybe you'll get one that's blind and you can <laughs> find her up and doesn't see it. Yeah. Well, and we got into one other bull that day. I'm going to kind of gloss over it, but I do want to make, I, I do want to say that, you know, I watched you grow again as a caller, just like last year when you called the one in and I shot in the chest. Uh, the last interaction of the day was, was very vocal and you're doing things with the bugling too, but I've never heard you do this. This bull's all fired up. Unfortunately, a couple cows came up the ridge and saw us and uh, he bugled one more time and then, and then took off. Um, so that, that was, that was essentially that day. Um, Ty comes back. Actually, we, we go back to camp after that. Ty walks back up and we tell him about the day's events and make a plan for day four, which I think that, that was the day that the weather uh, started to, to really come in. It's starting to rain. It's cold. And, uh, and the activity, Ty, really shut down. Um, what do you think shuts them down more? Full moon, because we dealt with, we would deal with that in the next couple of days, or uh, rain and snow? Well, it's been my experience that they both suck. Whenever it rains, it just seems to shut, you know, shut their vocalization down. Uh, and then, and then when it's a full moon, it changes their habit. So mm-hmm. with the rain shut, typically shuts their vocalization down. And then with the full moon and it was being, it was clear at night and then it would rain during the day. Um, it just had them up at night and, and in their beds all day. And just the, the vocalization was just at a bare minimum. Um, I've gone, I've gone days. I've even gone a, more, over a week not hearing a bugle. So even though it went from, you know, the first three days we're off the hook, bugles all day long, chasing elk, um, to the rainy day and fighting the, you know, the lunar phase. It was still not that bad because even on the worst days we had bulls bugle. You know, um, they may not have been all fired up and playing the game like we wanted them to, but uh, they still did talk a little bit, which is super helpful, obviously. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, we kind of had a double whammy there with some bad weather and the, the lunar phase, the full moon. Well, at least at this point, you've got your Kenetrex and uh, you're ready to, to to go back to work, Ty. And so we head out that day and go a different route and end up hiking over, I guess, probably the highest peak in that area, um, which was pro- it was it was the most physically exerting aspect of the entire hunt. There's no doubt about that. But it was rewarding. And Chisholm even said, we're going to hike over that mountain and God's going to reward us. And I mean, I'll be damned if we didn't hike over the top of that mountain. He Chisholm's cow calling and we hear a bugle 
And it was another one of those situations where he's coming. And uh, and I don't know who needs to handle this, uh, what, what happens next, if Chisholm wants to tell it or if Ty. You guys, you guys work that out. Go for it, Ty. <laughs> That's not fair. But I'll do it. Yeah, it, you know, it was one of those situations where, you know, uh, Cable can't hear anything. Like he's deaf. And uh, Don't shoot ARs without ear protection, y'all, or you'll end up just like me. Public service announcement. Or yeah. listen to loud rock and roll music. Mm-hmm. Um, so this bull bugled quite a ways. It sounded like he was a long ways. But this mountain was super steep. Um, yeah. We were at the top of it. The wind was kind of blowing. The bugle sounded far off. I don't know if I was rustling around moving. I didn't hear the bugle. And uh, Chisholm's like, hey, he bugled again. I'm like, oh, he did. Huh, cool. I'm not diving down this mountain to go after him. <laughs> He's on the wrong side of the mountain. If we kill him down there, we're here for three extra days. So I'm like, I wonder if, if we can call him up here. I'm kind of, that's going through my head. And about that time, he bugles at what I guess was probably 80 yards. And I like to refer to it as a Chinese fire drill because we're all looking at each other like, what do we do? What do we do? I'm like, well, I mean, we better figure it out. And uh, I just kind of went uphill. And and you, I believe you kind of went one way, table and Chisholm went the other way. And we kind of just separated ourselves as far as we could without being seen. And the bull was coming fast. And I can't see him. I, I'm directly uphill from Cable. And I can see Chisholm over to the to my right as I'm facing downhill. And uh, this was the day that I, because the weather was bad, I left the camera at camp and picked up my bow and became part of the team. Um, so I was hunting with you guys this day. And uh, so I knocked, we all knocked arrows. And I threw a few calls uphill behind us and then i hear the bull bugle and he sounds close and then i can i'm thinking he's going right to chisholm and then he turns and goes back the other way like he's going to go in front of cable and about that time i see i see cable i can see you and i know where the bull's at because i can watch you and see where you're looking and over the corner of my my eye i see movement i look over and chisholm's walking across the hillside And I'm like, what the frick are, is going on? And uh, I'm wanting to throw rocks at him and big sticks and hit him in the head. And uh, I see the bull circling up around, and I'm trying to throw calls back over my shoulder. I'm trying to get, you know, sound farther away. And then I see, you know, you took your arrow off, you know, off your string, put it in the quiver, and uh, I can still see the bull. And then I, like, he just decides he's had enough and he leaves. And um, this was one of those lessons that, that Chisholm learned. Um, and and this whole thing was just a big school, right? Of like learning what to do and when to do it. And I'll let Chisholm explain from his end. But from my end, what I could see was like he knew that the bull was moving away and he wanted an opportunity for a shot and he thought he could move in and maybe get that opportunity. And I think he thought you were a little farther to my left. He moved when he shouldn't have and cow called when he shouldn't have. And that bull just did not, did not like what he saw and heard. Yeah. Yeah. So well, and I think Chisholm, I think there was a little bit of an internal uh, battle going on there just from, uh, you know, I killed the bull last year. I'd already at this point shot two arrows 
and Chisholm was all, you know, hopped up on alpha brain and, and testosterone. So uh, I think he just, you know, got five a little... Hour, and five hour energy. And, yeah, I think he just got a little bloodthirsty. Defend your honor. Yeah, and climbing a mountain. <laughs> I think, I think. Uh, yeah, that's all correct. Um, Ty, you are right. I really sincerely thought that we had broken off from you at like 45 angles in opposite directions. I really thought Cable was... 50 to 75 yards further cross hill from me. But it doesn't excuse the fact that I did move like knowingly trying to intercept this bull, even though it was going basically his direction. And uh, It was a moment of weakness that I was <laughs> immediately regretful for and ashamed of. And you didn't bring it up, but you know, two weeks earlier, Ty and I had talked and um, just talking about expectations for the hunt and what we wanted out of it and everything. And he was like, you know, the biggest thing to him, you know, that, he's, that him and his crew have always lived by is that you can't be selfish in the Elk Woods. It's a team effort. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who pulls uh, pulls the trigger, so to speak, or, or lets the arrow fly. Um, everybody's going to have to play their part in getting the bull in, making the right moves, getting the bull down, and, and then breaking it down and getting it out. Yeah, I knew as I was doing it, I was violating that, that code and... You know, it was something that uh, I don't think I'd done in the Elkwoods before. Uh, I definitely don't think it's something I'll ever do again. But um, well, I've always been in Elkwoods with you, and I've never seen I've never seen that happen. So uh, yeah, I can totally yeah. validate yeah, it, it. It's not a normal thing. I got selfish. It's all there was to it, uh, and uh, it cost us a, a prime opportunity. Um, I'm pretty sure that bull was a he was a, he was a goner. And I uh, beat myself up about it for a good 24 hours. Uh, but I learned a lesson, and uh, it was there was a few things put back in perspective over the next day to day and a half. You know that I don't know. I always try to this these this annual week in the wilderness is again way about way more than elk hunting for me. And mm-hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, I took home a, a lesson about teamwork and service that you'd asked me before we went, I would have spoken the right words, but in that moment I didn't live them. So sometimes you need a, uh, a sharp, sharp reminder to really like take something to heart. And, uh, I got that from it. So, well, and it well, takes, I mean, it takes a big person to just say, Hey, look, I, you know, just, you owned it, you owned it from the time you did it. And, and it, it wasn't a big deal to me. Uh, I was just like, ah, it sucks. We'll, we'll find another one. You know, that's my mentality. As Ty would, you know, find out over the course of the hunt, Chisholm is much more intense than I am. I think that's why we're always a good balance in the Elk Woods, you know. He takes things personally when they don't work out. I, I kind of, I don't really, and, and, you know, we kind of balance each other out that way. And I'm sure Ty, you probably noticed that over the course of the week. <laughs> the balance, not that Chisholm's high strung. I'm just saying, like, how we're, we, you know. We, <laughs> you guys are yin and yang, yeah. um, for sure. I, and for that situation, and for me, like, I'm pretty even keel. There's, I mean, I wanted to throw a rock at him in the moment, um, maybe a big stick, but when it was over, it was over, and I was done with it. And the fact that you owned up to it, like, that, for me, was enough. Like, I I, I didn't give two more thoughts about it after we hiked, finished hiking over the mountain went down the other side. Like, I, I was over it, and I didn't even think about it. And you don't learn until you make mistakes, right? Right. Yeah. What? And Ty, you and I, we figured out our personalities are a lot alike. 
and we might put a rock in someone's pack and like that kind of behavior just doesn't really even like I don't even think it ever crosses Chisholm's mind you know he told me like when we were sitting in the hotel room in Missoula last night after the hunt was over he's like he's like it it just never would have occurred to me to put a rock in someone's pack and me and you were just like cracking up over it you didn't put a big enough rock in his pack yeah yeah he's a good sport about it I'm all about having fun like when you're out there and you know you're it, it, you got to have fun and uh, everything in life, like everything I do, I try to have fun doing it. And if that's, you know, needling your buddy or showing him your wiener, like that, <laughs> try to have a good time with it. Yeah. But, but I got to, you know, I got to tell you, like, I don't want people to think Chisholm has no personality, he's no fun because Chisholm is just an analytical person. You know, he looks at every aspect of something and, and then makes a well-educated decision on it where I'm more just like fly by the seat of my pants and, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it's, that's not a great thing. So that's why going back to that balance of, of, you know, being in the woods with someone for a week, it's, it's great to have a different perspective. I think we should take a picture of your pack and that really describes <laughs> your personality. <laughs> it was, a, it was a sharp looking pack. It was tight and, you know, it was. Picture of the pack is worth a thousand words for sure. <laughs> yeah. We're going to work in a quick break here. That segment proudly brought to you by a piece of equipment I wish I would have had a chance to use on that bull that I missed. It's the uh, Vortex Razor HD 4000 Laser Rangefinder. It is the creme de la creme of the rangefinding world. And you can find it along with Vortex's entire lineup of quality optics right there at vortexoptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. When we come back, enough with the screw-ups, an arrow actually finds its mark if we discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Inside my girl, let a lock find its key. Swing the gates to my world wide. It'll be something to see. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to threecurl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. I retrieved every bird that ever fell to your gun. Quail from the fence row, mallard when the creeks would flood. I even found a shed antler one time. 
couldn't wait to see your daddy's proud smile. We that one always puts a tear in my beer. Boy and his dog, Justin Bowerman, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show. I'm Cable Smith, and gosh, that one has to go back almost 10 years as we celebrate episode 500 here today. Uh, Justin had to be one of the first musical guests I ever had in studio. And to this day, that tune always conjures up uh, memories of my first lab, old Maverick, who uh, I guess he died in 2016. Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. But anyway, uh, that's unreleased, by the way, so you can't find it except for here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. We are talking all things elk hunting today, doing so with Ty Stubblefield and Chisholm Cook, my good buddies whom I just spent a week with chasing elk in Montana. And this segment is brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. You can find them at gr, the number 8, mounts.com for all your trophy mounts. Unfortunately, Chisholm had to jump off for a second here. He had a work conference call, so we'll pick it back up with Ty as we head into day five of our hunt. I think we got into some elk that morning, and it was another one of those close encounters, uh, where at the end of it, it just didn't, you know, I don't know when it came to full draw and no one really made a mistake. It just, you know, the, the bull at the end of the day just didn't want to play ball. And uh, and it, it I think it built on Chisholm's frustration from the day before. And finally, he was just like, give me the bugle tube. I'm calling for you guys. I'm like, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. It's fine with us. That afternoon, we sit down. I Actually, we'd put, like like always, kind of put an elk to bed. Uh, we'd been chasing him around that morning. Heard a few bugles, and finally we were like, you use your you know, instincts and said, he's over here in this direction. And, and I imagine when we sat down for, for snack, um, he was probably you know, 300 yards away. Uh, and then we're sitting there on this log, the three of us, and Chisholm's like, guys, he's coming. He's coming. And he had been, he had been cold calling, just doing, throwing out some cow calls. And sure enough, here comes this bull. The uh, series of events after that were all pretty funny. Um, to be honest with you, you know, you you end up coming to full draw, and like the log well, I, just. Like, I think, I think leading up to that, you and I were like goofing around. And, oh yeah, yeah, we totally were. Like you and I were like goofing around and uh, making jokes and eating snacks, and all three of us sit precariously sitting on this balanced log. Yeah, and 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 the bull comes, and you come to full draw. He's off to the left, and and then the whole log just like bottoms out, and we drop like a foot, <laughs> which was uh, pretty funny in its own right. Because here's this bull; he's like trying to figure out, and he can see us. He's like, "What in the hell was that?" Um, and you know, he kind of spooks, and you you turn like you would always do, like you turn and you you try to throw your cow call back up the hill, right? Uh, which you did in that situation, and and then he starts to make this arc back around in front of our log. On, you know, downhill from us, the wind's still right. And, um, you, I think you almost had a shot there at like 55 yards. Yeah. When he was, when he was coming, so he was below us at about 55 and he was making this circle around us to my left and you're to my right and Chisholm's to your right. And we're like three lumps on logs. And this, when he was coming in, he was coming around to my left, and he just kind of was making this arc at 55 yards, just the circle around us. And he was coming into a window when I drew, and then the log fell. And then, uh, like, that kind of, like, put him on edge. And I, you know, 
I can't explain it because we're in the wide open. We were in a burn mm -hmm. and we're three dudes sitting on a log and he looked right at us, but you know, like I, like I said, you know, they're after that, like they're looking for an elk. Yeah. So they're not really looking for a human. And so I think he was just kind of looking through us and, you know, logs fall all the time in burns. And so I think he kind of just blew it off. But when I threw the call behind us, it kind of threw it, you know, right over my shoulder back up the hill. So he turned and was making like tracing his steps back around. And yeah, I was, I don't remember if I was still at full draw if I had let down and redrew, but he came through another window and I cow called and stopped him, but he stopped with like two limbs right in front of his vitals. Hmm. And I just I couldn't get an arrow through there. So let him walk and he kept walking. Yeah. He continued that arc and he gets to now where, uh, he's to my right and you know, 30 yards, easy shot. Right. And I pick out the window and I know I'm going to smoke this. I'm pool. looking right over. I'm looking right over your shoulder. I'm like, oh, he's got this. Yeah, and 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 I uh, put that pin right on his vitals, and I watch my arrow fly over his back, and it had hit a twig. I mean, it does not take much at all for you know any kind of deflection, and that arrow is doing its own thing. And I thought it was. A, I mean, I thought it was a slam dunk. I thought that 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 bull was going down right there. Um, you know, perfect vital shot. And next thing you know, like I said, the arrow was flying over his back. So my heart sinks. And that's one thing, uh, you know, we all talked about was, especially because Chisholm and I have always just been a two-man team. Now we're, now we're a three-man team. And when you, when you make a bad shot or you, you screw up, you do something stupid, something boneheaded that costs your team. Yeah, okay, I felt bad because I missed the shot. But I also felt bad because, you know, in that other situation, Chisholm called the bull in. In this situation, no one had shot an elk. And here I had this great opportunity, and boom, the arrow goes over his back. Luckily... You stole victory out of the jaws of defeat, Ty, and stopped him with a cow call. And let, next thing, and you're behind me. Next thing I know, I hear a whoosh, and that arrow, I, I see a hole open up in that elk's vitals. And I'm like, holy crap, Ty just smoked that thing. <laughs> so <laughs> the elk runs 60 yards down the hill and falls over dead. And we're all high-fiving, and, and, uh, and yeah, I wish it would have been me that shot it selfishly, you know, but at the, at the same time, I was, I was ecstatic that you saved the day, uh, made a great shot. Um, and, and next thing you know, we're, we're packing, we're quartering up a bull on the side of a mountain. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely like bittersweet. Like I, I wanted you guys to, you know, take an elk home. I wanted it to be you guys. My reactions got the best of me. Like as soon as you miss, like that's my reaction is to, to call. Yeah. Get like you never know when they're just gonna stop and give you one more chance. Yeah. Um my nick my nickname's three arrow for a reason. <laughs> um, my hunting buddies like to say take three arrows to kill an elk, but most of the time because I can get three arrows off pretty damn quick. Yeah. So you know, you never know when uh when if you just throw out that cow call and just get them to stop, just give you one more second, um, you might get that you know, that shot that you need. And in this case, like he stopped in a perfect window for me. Um, and I was able to, you know, get a shot off and, and, uh, get the job done. But you just, yeah, it was just kind of my reaction more than anything. Well, that was another thing that Chisholm and I both learned, you know, there are lots of nuances you pick up from someone who's, who's done it a lot more than you. And, um, the cow calling to stop them, you know, and the, the fact that it's never over until it's over, like, uh, there's times when 
when elk, like younger ones, like the next day we would have one wind us, like twice. And you just kept cow calling, and the, the, the dumb thing kept coming back. He never did give us – well, actually, he did give me a shot, but I passed on it because I'd already shot three times and was hoping that he was going to take two more steps into Chisholm's shooting lane, which he beat me up. You know, he beat me up over that. Like, why didn't I take that shot? But, you know, you and I talked about it, and I told you, for me, it was the right thing to do. Just I'd already shot – I'd already shot three times. He hadn't, you know, let an arrow fly, so – and I thought the elk was coming, you know. I thought that was—I thought it was going to be a home run for him, slam dunk. It was going to be a thirty-yard shot, and uh, just it didn't pan out. But, but the point was on that one was, especially with a young bull. I mean, he winded us twice and still came back, you know. Well, we we walked into him and blew him out. First. Oh, you know what? I even that that reminds me. I smelled that bull before we ever saw him. I said, "There's an elk here." You didn't hear me. Chisholm heard me. You were you were first, and next thing you know, we we yeah we busted him. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, we blew him out, and uh, he he must have seen us at that point because the wind was okay, but he must have seen us, so he blew out, and I started cow calling, and he turned and came right back to us. It took a little while, like it took you know five ten minutes for him to walk back in, but uh, he came back in, and like you said, ended up winding us two more times. Yeah. <laughs> Walked a full, almost a full circle around us, um, but you know sometimes that's all it takes to get the opportunity that you need. Yeah. Well, so I think that uh, the last couple of days um, we got into more elk and and had um, more encounters. I, I think I don't think anyone came to full draw the last day, maybe the last two days, but we certainly were in elk every day. Uh, sometimes they came in quiet there towards the end, but. Uh, bugling, I think was picking back up as we were leaving, you know, the full moon had come and it was on its way out. Uh, so I imagine this next week's going to be on fire up there. Um, uh, but it was a hell of a spot, Ty. There's no doubt about that, man. We, Chisholm and I, when we go to New Mexico, our honey hole there, we, we hope that we each come to full draw one time. That's the goal. You know, on this trip, we had many opportunities, um, not always coming to full draw, but, but always in elk every day. And uh, it, it far exceeded my expectations, I'll tell you that right now. It was awesome. Sometimes you win them, sometimes you lose them, but I think it felt like we won this one. It was uh, full of opportunity and full of lessons, which I think, if nothing else, if you guys could take that and improve, um, it, the trip was entirely worth it, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that was the goal. You know, that was the goal from the beginning. Become a better elk hunter. Learn from someone who's done it, which was something that we had not previously had the opportunity to do. Uh, so certainly, you know, I, I enjoyed that aspect of the hunt, and it lived up to the uh, the goal that I had set out for, is become a better elk hunter. And, and like you said earlier, a lot of times you do that through screwing up. I've learned everything I know the hard way. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, the funny thing about this whole deal is, is I – I filmed every day, but the the rainy days, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't want to get my camera out in the rain, but I'm pretty sure I only have one elk on film. Like the rest <laughs> of it is like guys walking through the woods and calling and lots of scenery, calling, but yeah. lots of scenery pictures. That's pretty neat. Um, but uh, I only have like one elk on film, even though there was multiple encounters, you know, yeah. But, uh, well, give me some good pictures that came out of it and some good video. Well, Ty, give me the highlight for you and then the low point for you, and then I'll do the same thing. For me, the highlight was get to, you know, spend camp with you guys and, um, help share some of my knowledge, um, 
and just just be a part of you know i think chisholm said this being part of somebody else's journey i really enjoy that like i i really do like helping people learn and become better elk hunters and so that was the highlight for me is and the fact that you guys were like wanted me to be a part of the team rather than just be there filming i'm like i that part i was thankful for because how many days were we out hunting seven yeah seven days eight eight days um you know so to be able to be a part of it as well like that that part was definitely a highlight i you know i just i don't, I can't think of a low light like i i don't dwell on the negative i thrive on the positive so i don't as far as a low light um the pine martin getting into the back strap like that was <laughs> <laughs> yeah that little rascal at least it wasn't a bear we we had literally nothing left so yeah, pine martin ate half the back strap of bear would have eaten it all so we got pretty lucky there yeah glass half full um so my low light would obviously be um well i would say that the second bull that i had the chance to shoot at where i just i chose to come to full draw and instead of ranging him just didn't you know didn't feel like i had time to do that i don't know uh maybe i could have you know ranged him and still come to full draw i don't know i'd like to have that shot back that would be the low point the highlight for me was we were uh well first Chisholm walking around collecting firewood in the rain was pretty funny. I think we we might have had uh, one too many bourbons back at camp one night and Chisholm was walking around in the rain looking for firewood and Ty comes back and we're like, Where are your shoes, dude? It's like forty degrees and raining on a mountain. I thought that was pretty hilarious, I thought. I uh I, I thought it was hilarious. I, I will say that I, we were there at the campfire just you and i for quite a while and i'm like you know this is my first camp sharing with you guys and i'm like do you think he's lost like, no no he's a pretty <laughs> smart dude and i'm like after five or ten minutes more go by i'm like yep he's lost <laughs> and then the deaf guy said hey i think i hear him yelling that's me and sure enough he was yelling i'm like over here dude over here we thought he'd see the bonfire we had going but uh <laughs> yeah anyway he made and then so that was pretty funny. Uh, and then one other thing that stands out, and I'm I'm sad that Chisholm had to jump on a work call, but uh, we're sitting there eating lunch in the middle of the woods, like on a ridge that is probably one of the gnarliest drainages that we went into. And here come two hunters walking up. Like, how in, it's like needle in a haystack. How in the hell they've chose the same? There was, there was no trail, Ty. We're just literally had bushwhacked our way over there. These two guys walk up, and they see one of them sees your red beard, and he goes, "Is that Ty Stubblefield? I gotta shake your hand." And Chisholm and I just died, just just died laughing. Uh, which they they ended up being a couple nice guys, but that was uh, certainly one of your super fans, and uh, probably pretty rude of you not to offer to take a picture with him. Yeah, I probably should <laughs> offer to sign his chest too. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the great Ty Stubblefield. Known out west, I mean. Yeah. Just a couple other things, like tips. Um, like I said, I've been backpacking a while, but one thing that I never thought of, you know, your socks get a little damp. Mine were never wet because my boots didn't suck, unlike Chisholm's, um, which he's definitely getting a pair of Kenetrex. I think when before this interview started, he was saying he was on their website looking at different different models uh, earlier today. Um, but uh, your socks get a little sweaty. You throw them in your sleeping bag, Ty. Yeah, that was a tip that you gave gave us, and your body heat uh, dries them out. Yeah, any any of your clothes that you know might get damp, um, 
because you have no place to dry anything other than over the fire, and any time you dry stuff over the fire, you typically ruin it, especially yep. boots. And I've burned um, many pairs of socks. Yep. Instead of Chisholm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, if you wear, wear, as long as they're not soaked, like you don't want to get the inside of your sleeping bag soaking wet. But if your socks are damp or your pants are damp, um, wear them inside your sleeping bag, sleep in them, and your body heat will dry them out over the course of the night. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was, that was one, uh, one tip for sure. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any other like any gear that I wish that I would have had that I didn't have. Um, the, the butt pad. Oh yeah, that was another thing. Ty has a a little foam butt pad for you know taking a crap, puts it on a log. Also great for sitting around camp uh, when you know your butt starts to hurt from sitting on the ground or because not like we had the ability to haul in camp chairs up there in the mountains. So uh, that's definitely a must, and it's lightweight. That thing can't weigh more than a couple ounces. Yeah, it's one of those sleeping pads. It's like a foam sleeping pad that folds up like an accordion. Um, and I cut it in half and use half of it. And yeah, use it for log pooping. Use it for, uh, I put it outside my tent in the morning. So when I put my you know boots and stuff on, I'm not getting a bunch of debris in my boots, not mm-hmm. my so- socks. I use it when I'm changing my clothes. I'll stand on it. Midday nap time. Yeah. They call them glassing pads. Yeah. Um, but I use it for everything. Yeah, midday naps. Love my snacks and naps. Also, you and Chisholm both had uh, walking sticks. I did not. I think, and I don't really care for them, other than maybe when you're hauling hauling meat. You know, I think that would have come in handy. It goes back for me. All I'm about I'm counting the ounces, man. I'm like, do I really need an extra set of batteries? Like two extra sets for my headlamp? You guys certainly look to be uh, hightailing it. While I was, you know, bringing up the rear, I think those walking sticks might have helped. Except for the one night where I beat you in the foot race with our packs on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You uh, you thought it'd be a good idea to go race across the meadow full of potholes and little. Whoa, 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 whoa! Well, let's back up. I was usually last uh, coming back to camp every night, and for whatever reason, I had a lot of energy one afternoon, and I was like, I'm winning this. And it, you guys didn't even know it was a race. Uh, until I flew by you and said, see you later, dude, or something. And then you're like, yeah, you went, you went running by me, um, walking briskly. I, I was not running. I was walking briskly. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you went by me. I knew something was up cause it was the fastest he'd moved all week. Uh, I was trying to keep up from behind before he started running. And I was like, what's getting into this dude? Yeah. Mind, mind you, it's all downhill, but, uh, who's, who's, who's counting that? Um, but yeah, you went uphill both ways, but okay. <laughs> and uh, you were like, "I gotta have some self-respect. I can't be last every day." And so I said, "You're gonna earn this." And so we we both took off running. And uh, oh, I just wanted to clarify. I, I wanted you to admit that you were also sprinting after me. I look over my shoulder, and you're like, "What six foot? I'm five ten. I was like, "Oh, he's got long legs." So I just kick it into high gear, and um, yeah. And you're like, you're going to earn it. And I'm, so I'm flying through this meadow. And then what you thought would happen, happened. So you, you took off running. And uh, I did take off after you. But I was also like, I have a, an inexpensive camera in my hand. And I know what's going to happen. So I tried getting the camera on as I was running behind you, knowing that one of us is going to bite it. And uh, just as I was getting the camera turned on, you <laughs> You did this 
super graceful uh, swan dive. <laughs> run through this, run through this little hidden creek in the meadow and crashed. Managed to save your bow, which I was super impressed. Yeah. Um, Very yeah, athletic. I what happened that and you crashed. <laughs> you know, there were crevices that you didn't see till you were a foot from them, and they were three foot deep and like like nine inches wide, just enough to catch a foot and snap it. Did that. The point is, is that I won, and uh, I felt really good about that. And also, I feel great about the fact that it wasn't captured on film. So uh, this is all hearsay. <laughs> this is just y'all's opinion on what happened. Although I will say, Chisholm got back to camp a few minutes later, and he goes, "Was that was the llama barking?" Did y'all hear? He's like, did y'all hear that? Was the he makes this funny noise that one that I had never hadn't really been around llamas and heard them vocalize like that. But Chisholm's like, uh, was was Jack bar- barking at something? And Ty was like, no, that was me laughing at your dumbass friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yep. Uh, Chisholm, we already covered. We covered our our favorite moments, our funny antidotes, uh, the guys that we ran into in the mountains that knew Ty, uh, you collecting firewood barefoot in the rain, um, like the uh, the uh, hippie that you are. And uh, if you want to give us, though, Chisholm, your, your highlight of the trip, I think we'll uh, we'll probably wrap it up with that, man. There were a bunch of them. Um, I mean, I, I, I my favorite encounter with an elk was uh, actually the one that you mentioned you wanted to just kind of gloss over, and that was that bull after the one you missed on the day you and I were on our own, the very last bull of the day, uh, you, you kind of mentioned that I had thrown a few more vocalizations out that uh, I didn't know I could do before yeah. that. Man, we had that bull wound up, and it, it was cool because he was doing that this moaning sound that was just like, whoa, you know, without any high pitch and real, really not a chuckle. And and I would go back to just what I knew, which was to bugle at him and, and maybe chuckle. And it, it, there was a few moments there where he wouldn't reciprocate with anything. Unless, until I threw out the same moan he was doing, and then the crazy, just bark bugle chuckle that he threw back, you know, you could tell he was he was switched at that point. And so I hit him with that thing a few times. Uh, that was the most fun interaction. Certainly, getting a bull was the overall icing on the cake, and you know, having I guess done the calling that at least got him to us, mm-hmm. even though. As I'm sure Ty mentioned uh, during that part of the story, I, I tried like hell to goof it up. Actually, <laughs> we uh, we actually covered that up for you. We didn't bring that part up. So, oh, well, okay. Yeah, so. we actually glossed over that. We should probably talk about that real quick. <laughs> Ty goes, Ty goes, Ty goes. Stop bleeping calling unless you're going to shoot it yourself. <laughs> he did say that. Full eighty yards away. Oh, it's funny. Uh, I didn't know what to do. He busted us. He was looking right at us. So I just went, man. Yeah, thinking maybe it'll keep him walking in our direction, or at least hold him there for. I probably would have done the same thing, man. Not gonna lie about it. So negative, uh, obviously, you know, getting busted at the top of the mountain. But um, you know, the flip side of that coin is there was some real growth I think achieved there. And um, you know, we talked about this heading in, but you can know something uh, and and have an intention to live a certain way. And I think anybody who's trying to kind of just grow daily and be better every day. We'll, we'll, you know, they, we all know that uh, that kind of change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen without some, you know, backsliding occasionally. You know, if, it, if you look at life like climbing a bunch of mountains, you sometimes you got to go downhill before you can go uphill again. And so um, I won't be perfect by any stretch going forward. And you know, I'm not going to pretend as though my I'm, I'm, you know, 
going to live a life of service every moment for the rest of my life. But uh, as y'all talk about, you know, when I said, give me the, give me the bugle. I'm oh yeah. Going, yeah, know. we did. Yeah. That was, um, I don't know, just immediate reinforcement of belief that I had that, that that's what I needed to do. Right. was just stop thinking about getting a bull for myself for the first time in three years <laughs> and uh, just get a bull for the team and, and, it, and it paid off. So it's hard to even, so that was a negative. I guess the only real negative was my sorry boots, and uh, I know I heard y'all talking about that. So yeah, I'll have that fixed before the next time. Yeah, and what did you end up doing with those boots? <laughs> uh, some uh, lucky uh, housekeeper at the uh, Hilton in Missoula, Montana, is the proud owner of some barely used, although thoroughly filthy, uh, scarpas. <laughs> Kinetrex for you for next year. That's right. Awesome. Awesome. If I could just throw in there yeah. to Ty, you know, thanks so much for uh, taking us to an amazing spot and, you know, sharing your knowledge and being patient with us and uh, being a tough SOB. I don't know if, if Cable touched on it at any point, but uh, watching you bomb through deadfall with a hindquarter on your back is uh, humbling. Um, I think I did a reasonable job keeping up with you, but I certainly didn't move as gracefully to do it. There were a few more grunts coming from me than there were for you, for sure. But um, you went way above and beyond. And I think you're being too kind. I'm just a fat old man that likes being in the woods. Jeez, so whatever. <laughs> more like a mountain goat. And but, uh, uh, and I'll, Ty, I also appreciate you know in, in the three way conversation of, about that we all shared about conservation and and the direction of our of our hunting community. And uh, and protecting our public lands, I think uh, you know those are the things. Whether it was sitting on a mountaintop eating a snack or sitting around a campfire um, eating elk tenderloin off of a uh, hot rock that you had cooked there, um, rare of course, which was perfect. Uh, but you know yeah, that was amazing, oh, dude. That was the best elk I've ever eaten. But you know wh- whatever wherever the conversations were taking place, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, the discourse as well with both of you. And I look forward to the next time we're all in camp together. Uh, as well as I, and um, for your listeners, uh, for, for you know, your fellow Texans and my fellow Americans, um, I invite you guys all to come out and do the same. Um, come out west to your public lands and enjoy all that they have to offer, even if it's a family vacation or a mule deer hunt or an elk hunt. Like, come check them out if you haven't, because... Um, you own them too, and they're an amazing place to, as Chisholm, you said, to grow and learn and um, just be a damn American. Yep. We're backcountry hard. <laughs> T-shirt coming soon. <laughs> All right, fellas. I certainly appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks for having us on. All right. There they go. Ty Stubblefield and Chisholm Cook. Uh do want to remind you about Ty's podcast, Shooting the Bull. Be sure to check that out as well. Uh, unfortunately, we got to go. Got to get out of here. Flat out of time. That segment of the show was brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. Check out the new Pulsar Axion Monocular if you haven't already. You can find it as well as the new Thermion Thermal Rifle Scope right there at PulsarNV.com. In addition to Pulsar, I want to thank all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, 
I'm Cable Smith saying here's to 500 more episodes, and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Guess I'll meet you 